Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of DevRaga Personal Finance, and this is episode 61. In this episode, we're going to talk about trusts. What are trusts? Now, shout out to Sunny for this topic suggestion, and thank you for suggesting this topic, and also thank you to others as well who have also suggested future topics, which I'm slowly working my way through. Um, so basically, we will discuss the ins and outs of trusts in this episode, which is a very common entity in Australia. What does trusts mean and how can they be beneficial to protecting your assets and allow you to income distribute? And why is this very important? Now, remember, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm just a random doctor interested in personal finances and learning in general. Please engage a real financial planner or advisor if you're looking for advice relating to your personal situation. I'm always happy to provide my opinion, but that's basically what it is, and it stops at that. Before we go on to the main topic, though, let's catch up on the main premise of this channel. What is the mission of this financial podcast channel? Well, the mission is to provide financial education to the average Australian. Financial education, I think, is really important and potentially can be the difference between retiring comfortably versus retiring with significant financial difficulties. In my humble opinion, I think there are five relatively simple steps to building lasting wealth in the long term. There is nothing complicated about it. Step one is the pay yourself concept. That is, you save 20% of your after-tax income and pay that money to yourself. Now, if you can't save 20% of after-tax income, I get this a lot um, in my private messages or SMSs or emails, Devraga, I can't afford to save 20% of my after-tax income. That's okay. Start with 5% and then slowly work your way up to 20%. But I feel that a minimum of 20% over the long run will put you in, an, in, a, in a really, really good financial situation, uh, provided you do it consistently and you um, try and automate it, which is going to be step five that I'm going to discuss. Step two is invest the money. So the 20% that you've saved, you have to invest it property, shares, whatever it is, what you understand, what you love, what you enjoy, invest it. Don't put it in the bank and watch it because it's going to lose value due to inflation. I've talked about this in my previous episodes. Step three, reinvest the dividends that you get from that investments. Never, ever cash out dividends, particularly when you've got a steady state of income because it's the dividends that reinvested compound over the long term. Step four, do it for the long term. So what is long term? In my view, long term is at least 20, 30 or 40 years, not five or 10 years. I think you should not touch things for up to 20, 30 or 40 years. And really after about 20 years, you'll see a significant growth of your investments if you played your cards right. And step five, my favorite, always try and automate this process. Now, if you did this, it's likely you will build more wealth than you ever thought necessary. Now, the aim is not just to get, not just to get super rich, right? That's just a boring um, sort of element to life. 
but to become financially independent so you can stop trading time for income. This is the most inefficient way to build health, trading time for income and live in general. That's just not a great efficient way to build wealth. Being financially independent means you can have more options in life for yourself and more importantly, create lasting opportunities to help other people. Now, as I grow older and hopefully more wiser, I'm starting to realize there's, you know, there are some things money definitely can't buy. There's only so many big homes or cars or nice hotels you can stay in or traveling first class one can achieve. What gives me and my family more joy, particularly during this time of giving that's coming up called Christmas, is that when we donate money for great causes, buy things for people who can't afford them and sponsoring various children around the world and help continue the great work that global charities do. I've just noticed that since I've had kids, um, to help other children, particularly those in need overseas, and also helping those vulnerable Australians in our own country. Um, I find that that gives me greater satisfaction there, uh, today than it probably did you know, 10 years ago when I was a little bit too young to realise the value of this. Uh, but certainly being financially independent provides you with the opportunity to do that um, and, and therefore hopefully will give you great pleasure in your life. And of course, it also gives you opportunities to enjoy your life as well. Now, in other news, um, and a thank you for this gem from uh, Raul, uh, basically Vanguard is entering the superannuation industry. Now, if you've been reading the news lately, um, it's not live yet. They'll be applying for APRA regulatory body for the license to do that. There's a lot of legwork to be done yet. But essentially, it's great to see such a great company entering into the competitive supermarket in Australia. I'm not talking about supermarket as in Woolies and Coles. I'm talking about the superannuation market in Australia. Australians love superannuation, you know, and SMSF. Now, if you haven't listened to my specific episode on SMSF, uh, it's probably worthwhile to tune in to episode 51 um, to get a bit more of an understanding about SMSFs in Australia. That is self-managed super funds. But Australians love superannuation in general. Now, Vanguard, if you remember, disrupted the mutual fund industry many, many, many years ago and pioneered low-cost index funds and they want to do the same to the Australian super industry, which I think is a good thing. If you have superannuation, which most Australians do, and it's not in an industry super fund with low fees or not in something like an SMSF with low fees, you have to ask yourself why. What extra service are you receiving for a retail superannuation fund and what extra service and what extra performance are you receiving? And you'd be surprised how much fees these retail superannuation funds charge. So please don't ignore your superannuation. It's something that a lot of Australians ignore. Log into it, learn about it, have a look at the fees and make sure that you're paying low fees because fees can really eat up your nest egg, particularly as you are nearing retirement. Now, the Australian superannuation industry is actually the fourth largest in the world. So it's a huge market for Vanguard to get into. Um, and that's just a country with only 25 million people. So, you know, we love spending money on retirement. And also, they're upgrading their online portal, which would be more sophisticated. So if you're an existing Vanguard Index Fund holder, like myself, you'll notice that the online portal will be updated in the near future. 
And also, there is evidence out there that Vanguard funds will have reduced fees moving into 2020. And again, thank you for Raul Pope for this insight news that's just been reported. Uh, I think Barefoot Investor had a bit of an article about this. So that's great. That means one of the largest index fund companies in the world is going to be reducing fees even greater, which means you get to keep more of your investment rather than having to spend money on fees. Now, that's fantastic. So thanks, you, Raul, again. Um, now, for the main topic, what are trusts? Let's discuss the nitty-gritties of it, and let's get into it really, really in-depth. So what are trusts? Okay, The definition of the word trust in general language is assurance and confidence to imply the feeling of security. Extrapolating this to a financial definition, it's basically a fiduciary relationship in which one party, the trustor, gives another party, the trustee, the right to hold assets, whether it be property, shares or other assets, for the benefit of a third party, the beneficiary. Okay, I'm just going to repeat that because it might sound a bit complex. So let's go through it very slowly. The financial definition of a trust is basically a fiduciary relationship in which one party, the trustor, gives another party, the trustee, the right to hold assets, property, shares or other assets, for the benefit of a third party, the beneficiary. Okay, so why are trusts important? It's fundamental in planning of a business, an investment or family financial affairs. Now, you may be dealing with a trust without even knowing about it. And here are some examples where you may actually be dealing with existing trusts and you may not be realizing. Number one, mutual funds often have a trust structure. Superannuation, these are trust structures in Australia and everyone in Australia has superannuation if you're employed. Okay, Property trust and cash management trusts. You might be buying property trusts or property units in a trust fund. Testamentary trusts, which are created when someone dies. I've talked about this in my Wills episode back in the early days. Real estate agents uh, have a trust account where they can manage cash bond deposits when you buy a home, uh, when you pay a deposit, or when you pay bond uh, to rent a property. Uh, The real estate agent has a trust account for that. Lawyers often have trust accounts when you pay fees before being released to the actual law firm, okay? So in this episode, we'll look at the following. We'll understand the nature of a trust from a financial perspective, the people involved, the settlor or the trustor, the trustee and the beneficiary or the beneficiaries, there can be more than one. We'll look at the accounting and tax implications of trusts. I'm not an accountant, so for detailed questions, I suggest you consult your accountant. We'll go through some of the basics. And we'll look at some of the advantages and pitfalls of a trust as well. So, what is a trust in detail? One of the many misconceptions, and one of the many common misconceptions, is that a trust is a legal entity like a company or an individual. It is not. A trust is not a legal entity. A trust is essentially a relationship where person A holds property or assets for the sole benefit of person B. The person B is the beneficiary and person A is the trustee. So person A is known as the trustee and person B is known as the beneficiary and the trustee may be the same person who also owns the asset called the settler or the truster. But this need not be the case and we'll go into that in a little bit more detail later on in this episode. So this relationship between the trustee and the beneficiary is enforced by the courts of Australia and that's what makes it a legal liability. A trust itself is not a legal entity, but the relationship is enforced by the courts of Australia, and that's what makes it a legal liability. So, who can the trustee be? 
The trustee can be one person, an individual, or multiple people, or even a company. A company, which is a legal entity, can be a trustee for a trust fund. How many beneficiaries can there be? Again, it can be an individual, it can be one person, or it can be multiple beneficiaries. And usually in the setting of a family trust, the beneficiaries are usually the non-income producing partner or dependents such as children of the trustee. Can the trustee also be a beneficiary? Now, generally speaking, no. The trustee can't generally be the beneficiary. I mean, what's the point, right? But the general rule of thumb here is that the trustee has the obligation to operate the trust and look after its assets for the sole purpose of benefiting the end beneficiaries, and the courts of Australia will enforce this. So a trustee can't basically operate or misbehave with the assets and you know not do it for the sole purpose of benefiting the beneficiaries, okay? So this concept of the sole purpose of benefiting the beneficiaries is called a fiduciary duty. The fiduciary duty lies with the trustee to use the assets for the sole purpose of benefiting the beneficiaries. It's a really important concept that I need you to understand. So a trust is created. It's not something that you take lightly. And if you're the trustee, you have a fair bit of power, but you can't abuse that power. The laws are very strict on this. Now, if I was to use a medical example of this, not a financial example, if you went and saw your doctor, it would be outlandish to think that a doctor will treat you for the sole purpose of benefiting the doctor. That is illegal. I know some of you conspiracy theories out there are probably thinking, no, that's not actually true. The doctor can do whatever they like, etc. That is actually illegal. The doctor cannot do things to the patient for their own benefit. That is, for the doctor's benefit and not the patient's benefit, okay? The doctor does get paid a reward, usually in the form of monetary gains like money or, uh, you know, you, you, you pay a fees and you access that service and the expertise of the doctor. But they still have the right thing. They still have to do the right thing by the patient. The patient's right trumps everything else. That's kind of the medical analogy of a trustee and beneficiary relationship. This somewhat of a legal duty of care by the doctor to the right thing, to do the right thing by the patient, um, and that, that, that legal duty of care, if there's any irregularities and the doctor gets into serious trouble, we have something called the APRA, which is the Australian Health Practitioners Regulatory Authority, who regulate all doctors in Australia and come down with a hammer, absolute hammer, if anything is out of the ordinary. Now, just recently, a few of my colleagues have actually been randomly called upon to show how much self-directed learning they've done. APRA have basically conducted an audit, said, please show me all of the evidence that you have that you're actually doing continuing medical education and what evidence they have and prove it all to APRA. The onus is on the medical professional. They can wield their powers quite freely. That is, APRA can. It is up to the doctor to prove it, prove that they're actually doing all the audits and doing all the you know, learning and actually show APRA that they're doing continuing education. And the doctor has to use their own time, energy, and if it also means loss of income because they've got to take days off work to do these audits, um, then so be it. It is a stressful situation, but that's just the way it is. So let's go through some of the different types of trusts um, and let's go through them individually. Number one, fixed trusts. This just means the trustee holds the trust assets for the benefit of the beneficiaries in certain fixed proportions. 
each beneficiary automatically is entitled to agreed upon fixed share of capital gains and income from the trust assets. So let's use an example. If you have assets worth a million dollars and there is a trust, there are two beneficiaries to the uh, to the trust. A fixed trust just implies the two beneficiaries receive a predetermined fixed portion of the million dollars worth of assets, whether it be a 50-50 or a 60-40, etc., etc. You can just predetermine that in the trust deed. So that is called a fixed trust. The second type of trust is called a unit trust. Now, these type of trusts are actually uh, fixed trusts, but the beneficiaries are identified by units, similar to shares which are issued to shareholders. The beneficiaries then become unit holders. Mutual funds operate this way, and in fact, I think Vanguard operates this way. It's designed to benefit its members or unit holders, and you buy more units based on the unit value. That's why Vanguard is so special, because it is a trust structure, and the whole company is designed to benefit its members, its um, people that are investing in the Vanguard index funds, okay? So that is what makes it very, very unique. So the structure of Vanguard is is very, very unique as opposed to any other retail index fund, etc. Discretionary trust, now this is probably the most common type of trust funds in mm-hmm. Australia. Um, so basically it's involved in creating a family trust to protect the assets and income distribution, okay? This is important in tax planning and protecting the family assets. Basically, the trustee has full discretion in deciding what the beneficiaries receive, that is, whether they receive capital gains, whether they receive income from the trust profits, or they receive both from the family assets. The biggest benefit of this type of trust is that the trustee has greater control and flexibility over where the assets goes. This is a family trust, a discretionary trust, and the trustee has discretion. But wait a minute. Isn't this kind of kind of against the virtue of creating the trusts where the trustee must also use the assets for the sole benefit of the beneficiaries? I just said that before. Um, that's exactly what trusts are, but this kind of goes against that, doesn't it? Because a trustee wields a little bit more power. Then how can the trustee wield such high powers? Well, this is the dilemma in creating family trusts. It's quite rare for the courts to enforce trustee behaviours, especially if they're also the parents of beneficiaries. A lot of the families are family trusts where the trustee is the parents um, and they're the income producers in all this and they've accumulated all these assets and they put the assets in the trusts. And the beneficiaries are the non-income earners, such as their children. Um, So parents, listen up, you have some level of control, uh, and that's why they're called family trusts, they're also called discretionary trusts. Uh, Number four, the other type of trust is called a bear trust. Um, Usually only have one trustee and one beneficiary. Now the beneficiary wields the power here and has the right to the income generated by the assets and also the capital gains from those same assets. If you have a sole child, uh, you may want to consider this, uh, but most most people just go with a family trust or a discretionary trust. Hybrid trusts are basically a combination of fixed and discretionary trust where you can decide what happens to income distribution as opposed to capital gains of those assets held within the trusts. So basically hybrid is a combination of discretionary and fixed trusts.
Um, the other type of trust is called a testamentary trust. I mentioned earlier in this podcast episode, I've also discussed it uh, extensively and previously in my wills episode, way back in episode 14, which I recorded on the, I just looked up the dates, the 6th of September 2018, which is more than a year ago, which you know sounds like a long time back, um, but it was only last year. So time flies when you're having fun. But these type of trust, testamentary trusts, only take effect upon the death of a testator, um, will holder. Okay, so basically when the will holder dies, it automatically initiates what's called a testamentary trust. Now basically this can be achieved via a will where you leave a set of rules or restrictions and instructions on what happens to you after you die and how the assets are dealt with. This is useful if you have children who are not adults or have disabilities and will need help managing their finances. So it's not only really useful for adult children, but certainly useful for minors. So and, and, and also, just as an aside, if you don't have a will, guys or girls or whoever listening to this is, please have a will because no matter how young, how old, how healthy, how unfit you are, anything can happen, disasters can strike, and the last thing you want to do is leave your family at peril. Um, and there's also um, something called charitable trusts. The advantage of charitable trusts is that they have concessional taxation treatment, um, so you get concessions on taxation and deductions to taxpayers who give to such trusts. So there are two main types of charitable trusts, obviously the private charitable foundation trusts. Uh, so if you have a look at Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is perhaps the world's biggest example of a private charitable trust and they're not really seeking um, donations from the public and that's why it's a private uh, private trust. And the second type of charitable trust uh, is with gift deductible status. And this, these are basically public charities which um, offer in these type of trusts because they're seeking uh, you know, donations from the public. Okay, All of this is very regulated. You've got to have a board. Um, You've you, you got to keep meeting minutes and agendas and all that sort of stuff. So you know, this is very, very serious stuff. Um, superannuation trusts, of course, I've talked about that. That's a different form of trust. All superannuation funds in Australia operate as a trust. Um, and again, it's designed so that the trustee, you know, operates um, and manages the assets for the sole benefit of the beneficiaries, okay, the members of that trust who are the beneficiaries. The trustee decides on the investments that the fund makes, and the deeds are basically the acts of parliament, okay. The federal government sets the standard to which all superannuation funds must comply, and these are called complying funds. Uh, a good example of such a federal standard is the preservation age which the superannuation funds must abide by. They can't randomly allow you to access your super before your preservation age. So if, the chances are if you've got a superannuation fund, they're a complying fund, okay, because they can't, they can't basically act as a superannuation fund without compliance from the federal government. So that's the different type of trust that you can create in Australia. But really, we're really, really worried about you know, the discretionary family trust. Most of the listeners that are listening to this podcast episode are individuals who are looking to protect their assets and who are looking to reduce taxation legally, of course. So how do you form a trust? Well, you've got to create a formal deed or a declaration of a trust. It's basically a bunch of paperwork uh, that your lawyers or accountants can create. Um, the declaration basically means the owner of the property or the assets declares themselves as the trustee um, or nominate someone else for this purpose, and that will that 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 will use those trusts for the benefits of the beneficiary or beneficiaries. That is plural. So if the trustee is different to the owner of the property, then the owner of the property, that is a settler, 
settles the assets into the trustee's name. And that's why choosing a trustee is so important because being a trustee is quite a powerful position. You know, they are operating your assets. So you need to be able to choose someone or a company that will do the right thing by your beneficiaries. And of course, if they don't, they're going to get penalised. But really, you don't want to go through all that through the courts of Australia. And remembering in Australia, any transfer of assets by law requires stamp duty. So to avoid this, most people will transfer a low amount originally and the rest of the assets are transferred later on. That is if the trustee is different to the trustor. You want to transfer your assets in the name of the trustee. You transfer a little bit at a time, so you pay lower amounts of stamp duty um, because the stamp duty is only payable for the initial transfers as far as I'm aware. Now, I'm not an accountant. You might want to check in with your accountant, but this is from our research, so this is a bit of a cheeky tax avoidance strategy for you. Now, what sort of assets can a trust fund have? It can have cash, it can have property, it can have shares, contracts, um, businesses, factories, commercial property, uh, personal property, and it can even have debts, which I found a bit interesting. I didn't realize that it can actually have debts, but it can. But the main point of the trust, though, is that the trustee must deal with the assets having regard to the best interest of the beneficiaries. And if this doesn't happen, it is a means of breaching of a trust has happened. Okay, hence the term trust. So the courts can be involved and they'll come after you and seek damages awarded against the trustee uh, for this breach of duty. So let me ask you this question then or ask myself as a rhetorical question. Can the trustee then mix their own assets with the assets of the trust? Absolutely not. They must not mix their own assets with the trust's assets, okay? So, what are the trustee's liabilities then? The trustee is legally responsible for the trust's assets and liabilities. The trustee, therefore, personally is responsible for any debts which are held by the trust. So, you've got a fair bit of power, but you also have a fair bit of liabilities and risk associated with this because you are personally responsible for any debts which are held by the trust. And to create a bit of a protective distance... Um, you might actually want to consider a company acting as the trustee for the trust rather than an individual being the trustee, okay? So the trustee's liabilities are that they're legally responsible for the trust assets and liabilities, they're legally responsible for the debts which are held by the trust, but if you want to create a bit of a distance between um, you know, yourself and the trustee, you might want to basically create a company and then make the company act as the trustee for the trust rather than an individual being the trustee. Because remember, companies are legal entities, but trusts are not. Now, who can be a trustee? Individuals, groups of individuals or companies. Uh, now, the advantage, I think, of a company being a trustee is that companies don't die like humans do. So if you have a trustee and they pass away, it kind of creates a bit of havoc, whereas companies don't die. Uh, all you have to do is, uh, you know, change the board of directors or replace the board of directors, whatever it is. So that is the opportunity if a company is acting as a trustee is called perpetual succession. So because they don't die, the company kind of exists per per perpetually unless you physically shut it down. Now, when the trustee, though, makes a decision for a trust, they need to keep a record of such decisions. That's the other liability that the trustee has. And for large trusts, they need to keep meeting minutes and agenda items, etc. So it's not just a figurative uh, position. You have some legal liabilities. You've got to keep some written record of, uh, you know, meetings and decisions and why you did such a thing. Because, of course, 
if later on it's been proven that you've done a decision that is against the best interest of your beneficiary, the beneficiary can potentially take you to court and the, the, uh, uh, the courts will enforce that. Now, here comes the juicy part. I know you've been waiting for this. We talked about how a trust can reduce your taxation but also protect your assets. How is income tax treated then when it comes to trust? So what's the whole benefit of it? Income tax is not paid at the trust level. The tax treatment of income generated by the trust or the assets that, uh, that, that it has and it generates income from those assets really depends on who is entitled to the income as of the 30th of June of that financial year, okay, which is at midnight. Uh, there's usually a two-month grace period to work this out properly. So if the income is generated from the assets of the trust, that income is distributed to the beneficiaries and the taxation happens at the level of the beneficiary, not at the level of the trustee. This is why it's advantageous because the income can be split between the multiple beneficiaries who may be at a lower income tax bracket, therefore saving a lot of tax money, which adds up over time. Okay, so if the beneficiary, though, is not a tax-paying person, such as a child, then the income tax is paid at the level of the trustee's threshold. Okay, so that's why having sort of trusts uh, and having, you know, children, minors, it's not really that useful because they can only accept about a $416 income without actually paying any tax on it, and then they start paying tax on it. Whereas if you have adult children, that kind of changes things a little bit, okay? Now, if there is income, but there isn't an entitled person, that is, there is no beneficiary, then it gets taxed at the highest threshold, which is 47% in Australia. So, make sure you assign any income or capital gains to beneficiaries rather than not assigning it to anyone. So what that means is every year, with the profits that is generated from the assets of the trust, you need to assign that profit to various beneficiaries according to the trust deed, because if you don't assign it by a set amount of time, which is about a couple of months after June 30th midnight, then guess what? The tax man takes a huge portion of it. They're going to take 47% of those profits. So the grace period for that to happen is two months after June 30th each year. Okay? Now, then... That is the income that's generated from the trust. What about capital gains? How is that treated in terms of trusts? So this is another advantage. A trust must hold an asset for 12 months to be able to be eligible for 50% capital gains tax concession. And this also applies to beneficiaries of those assets. But if the beneficiary is a corporation, they don't get the 50% capital gains tax. Just like a trustee can be a corporation, the beneficiary can also be a corporation as well. So it's only for individuals uh, that are beneficiaries that are able to uh, access the 50% capital gains tax concession, okay? So what happens then if the trust makes a loss? Can the trustee basically distribute those losses to the beneficiary to use on a personal level? No, you can't distribute losses to the beneficiaries to use on a personal level. So if the beneficiary is on a high income tax bracket and the trust makes a loss, they can't distribute those losses to the beneficiary, okay? They can only accept the profits from the beneficiary. So, again, there's, there's a lot of laws and regulations here, but if played right, a trust can work out really well in terms of reducing your taxation, but more so protecting your assets as well, okay? 
Now that we've learnt a lot about trust, let's see how a family trust, that is a discretionary trust, which is probably the most common form in Australia, is going to be useful. Let's use an example for this. We'll consider a couple of main advantages for creating a trust, that is income splitting and asset protection. So let's talk about income splitting first. So I'm going to use an example to see how a discretionary trust may be beneficial for you in terms of income splitting and income distribution. Let's assume a family of four, two adults, one high-income earning adult and one no-income earning adult, and two children, both studying full-time at university. So both are adults. Let's make adult one to earn $500,000 per year. I'm purposely making this a very high figure to illustrate a point. Uh, I know not all Australians earn $500,000 per year, but you know a lot of people earn that sort of money, uh, and I'm doing it on purpose to highlight a point. Let's make adult two... Uh, as doing non-paid work. So basically housekeeper, homemaker, etc. And let's make child one is 18 years old studying at university and child two is 20 years old studying at university. Both not working, okay? Or doing paid work. The trustee is going to be adult one, the one that's earning $500,000 per year. And the beneficiaries may be adult two, and the two children, or just maybe the two children, but I've just included adult two in this as well. Let's assume the trust holds investment properties and assets which earn a further $200,000 in income. Okay, that's profit. So the trust has investment properties and assets and share portfolios, whatever it is, and on top of the $500,000 that adult one earns, the trust earns another $200,000 per year in income. Now, in a normal situation, the total income will be five hundred. dollars uh, if you didn't have a trust, $500,000 plus $200,000 in investment income because you don't have a trust. So your total income becomes $700,000 per year, which makes for a very high tax bracket for the extra $200,000 earned in investment income. That is 47% of the $200,000 investment income goes straight to the tax man, which is around 94000 bucks. Now, if you're earning 700000 bucks, what's an extra 94000 right? Well, now let's look at how this might work if you have a family trust. The $200,000 investment income can be distributed to the three beneficiaries because remember, the family trust is created such that the investment properties and the assets are held within that trust. Therefore, the $200,000 in profits or the income generated by that trust or the assets that are in the trust can be distributed to the three beneficiaries, the one adult and the two adult children. That means you can distribute $66,000 roughly per person. Remember, the three people don't earn any other income and are already paying zero tax. This means they only have to pay the tax on the $66,000 income each, which equates to only $11,000 per person. That is a tax in total of $33,000 for the same total $200,000 that's distributed over three people, rather than if you didn't have a trust, you have to end up paying $94,000 for the same $200,000 which we discussed before. Does that make sense? So basically, you're taking the $200,000, which is a profit at the trust level, at the trustee level, and then you split that income into three over the three adults, and each adult earns $66,000 roughly, 
and each adult now has to pay tax on that $66,000 rather than the entire taxation happening at the level of $200,000. Now, the individual that earns $500,000 still pays marginal tax rates of 47%, but I'm talking about the extra $200,000 that are earned by the investment properties and the shares or whatever it is that the trust holds. Okay? So therefore, rather than paying $94,000 in extra taxes, you now only pay $33,000 for the same extra $200,000 earned, and therefore that is a tax saving of $61,000. That is how ta- trusts work, and that is how a family trust can really save you income, oh, sorry, really save you in taxation. Okay, it's a very powerful concept. Now here's another example of a benefit. Okay, we talked a little bit about income splitting, but here's another example. Suppose the $200,000 is income split to the three beneficiaries, but a portion of that $200,000 before that income is split is actually lent back to the trustee for further investment purposes. And then the trust then charges the trustee an interest. Okay, let's say based on the current interest rate, they're going to charge 7% per annum interest, which is the market rate, etc. And let's say the trust um, lent $50,000 to the trustee. Okay, so out of the $200,000, $50,000 is lent back to the trustee and $150,000 is income distributed over the three adult uh, beneficiaries. Now, the interest paid by the trustee, because now the trustee takes that income and invests it, becomes tax deductible. Of course, they're going to be investing into their own personal name because the money is borrowed for an investment purpose. So the interest earned by the trust is then further distributed to the three beneficiaries that are already on the low income tax bracket. Hopefully that makes sense. So basically you've taken $200,000, you've lent $50,000 back to the trust, that gets invested, the profits from that get income distributed back to the pool of $200,000, and then that gets income distributed again with the three adult beneficiaries. So you can see that the interest that you pay on the money that you lend, I hope I'm not too confusing, but you probably need to watch a YouTube video to get a visual representation of this. The interest that is charged by the trust to the to the to to, to basically lend that money is tax deductible, but the interest or the dividends that's earned is income distributable. So therefore that's further tax deductions and that's further income distribution and further taxation saving. Hopefully I've explained it to the best of my ability. Hopefully that hasn't confused uh, many people. Now, the second advantage of a trust, or the third advantage, is basically asset protection strategy of family trust, right? This is why those billionaires and millionaires have trust funds, because they want to protect their assets, right? Let's use the same example above. Suppose the high-earning adult who earns $500,000 has a business, but is now having troubles with his personal businesses, okay? There are creditors looking to get their money back from that adult say, half a million dollars. So the business has gone bust or something's happening and they want to get their half a million dollars back. This is the liability adult one has. Remember, adult one is also the trustee for the assets owned in the family trust. Okay? So, the trustee owns no assets in their own personal name. The assets are actually owned by the family trust. But they are a trustee for the family trust which holds the family's assets. Let's say the family's assets are about, you know, $2 million, okay? That's shares, properties, etc. The question now is, can the creditor 
come knocking on the assets held in the family trust for their money? Generally speaking, no. The answer is no. The assets are held within a trust that provides a layer of protection and have a, uh, a, a basically a barrier or creates another layer of barrier. Um, so that creates a bit of a barrier against the creditors wanting their money back from the trustee. So trusts can also offer a level of protection when it comes to creditors and debts. So if you think about trust as a mechanism to distribute income such that your profits are taxed less, that is taxed at the level of the beneficiary, um, it's basically a way to reduce your tax liabilities. You can legally do this um, by looking at the adults in your beneficiary list. Children are only allowed, remember, $416 in a tax-free income before they get taxed. You can pick out the adults because adults have a tax-free threshold of $18,200. And for the purpose of this exercise, let's just ignore the children because um, they have a very low tax-free threshold, so children are a little bit complex. And you need to count the existing income that each adult may earn. Some adults' uh, children may not earn anything, particularly those university-goers, which means you can maximize their tax-free threshold. So let's use another example here. Suppose your trust makes a profit of $72,800. I'm specifically using this. You have three adult children plus one partner. You can practically give each of them $18,000 each. And when you do this, each of them exercise their tax-free threshold and pay no tax, right? Which means you can distribute the entire profits to your beneficiaries without paying any tax on it. It's completely legal. That is a great advantage of having a trust and income distribute uh, the profits from that trust. Not to mention also the added layer of protection of owning property and shares and assets of the family within that trust so that if something goes wrong with your businesses or whatever, then the creditors can't come back and take away all of your assets. So that is a massive advantage of creating family trusts or discretionary trusts. But of course, there are different types of trusts that I've talked about earlier in the episode. So that's about it. That is trusts. Let's summarize episode 61. Vanguard, getting into the superannuation industry, very early stages. They're investigating this seriously. And I think it's good for Australians that they're getting into it, if they ever do. Watch out for lower ETF and index fund fees in the future too. And if it weren't aware, um, some months ago, they already reduced the index fund management fee for the ASX 300 from 0.18%. Uh, which is the expense ratio to 0.16%, and that's going to be reduced hopefully in the future as well. We discussed specifically about trusts. What are they? The various types of trust, how to form a trust, uh, uh, what is a trust law, a set law, a trustee and a beneficiary, and who can be a trustee and who can be a beneficiary. And we specifically discussed how income tax is dealt with when compared to capital gains uh, for the assets within that trust. And we also um, discussed about what happens if the income is not presently entitled and what happens if the income is benefited to a child, which basically goes back to the trustee's tax bracket. We talked about income splitting and asset protection, how it helps in terms of creating trusts uh, for these two major, major advantages. So that's pretty much trusts and that's pretty much episode 61. Thank you very much for listening and suggestions for the topics. And thank you, Sunny, for the topic of trusts and also uh, thank you very much to uh, Raul Pope for the heads up about Vanguard entering superannuation funds and also them hopefully reducing their fees for their ETFs and index funds, uh, hopefully happening in 2020. Really appreciate your heads up on that one. Now, remember, I'm not a financial advisor. 
So if you want real financial advice, speak to your lawyer, financial advisor, planner, or accountant, or a team of people that you may have. Until next time, learn about finances. Remember, pay yourself first. 20% after-tax income, that is your money. Invest it, reinvest dividends, do it over 20, 30, 40 years, and make sure you automate it. And maybe you're in the process of creating a trust. And I hope this episode has helped. Until next time, this is Dev Raga, Personal Finance, Episode 61. Stay safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 